Good morning, beloved. Welcome to week four of Behold Your God, the Sunday School series. Today we'll be looking at the God who is everywhere and infinite. We'll be studying his omnipresence. A quick excerpt from Psalm 139, starting in verse 7. David pens, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and prepare our hearts to receive the lesson this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this Sunday morning uh, in many different states of being. Lord, I pray that you would sovereignly work the soil of our hearts to receive your word this morning. Lord, the uh, teaching here in Sunday school and the preaching later this morning during our worship service to you. Lord, I pray that as we learn of your attributes through this Sunday School series, that you would illumine our hearts and minds to your infiniteness and your altogether everywhere-ness, Lord, that is your omnipresence, Lord. Pray that we would understand that you cannot be contained, that you are everywhere at all times, Lord, and yet you chose to dwell bodily here on earth in your Son, Jesus Christ. So as we learn to reconcile that truth, Lord, I, I hope and pray that this time would be used to edify your people, that we would grow closer to you, Lord, that although we may ask, where have you gone or where are you, Lord, that we know that you are here and that you are drawing us to yourself. I pray for salvation today, Lord, for those who may not know you. I pray that you would change their hearts from a heart of flesh into a heart of uh, heart of stone into a heart of flesh, Lord, that, that they would be new creatures today. Lord, we pray all of these things because you first loved us, Lord, and therefore we can love you. Through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray all these things. Amen. Today we are in London to talk about a period in Hudson Taylor's life that had far-reaching consequences for China. 
The Taylors came home for what they hoped would be a short break, but it turned into a six-year furlough. Throughout the entire time, Hudson Taylor kept busy on behalf of China, working 13 hours a day, six days a week, revising a Chinese translation of the New Testament. He also completed his medical training at the Royal Hospital in London. And when possible, he traveled throughout the UK reminding the churches that in China, there was approximately one missionary to every four million people. In 1866, the Taylors returned to China, but not alone. Hudson Taylor had asked God to raise up laborers, and God responded. This time he was taking with him what was, at that point, the largest group of missionaries ever to leave the shores of England for China. They were also the first group to be sent by Taylor's newly formed China Inland Mission, a missionary society that would operate on different principles. Taylor was determined that the mission would not borrow money. Instead, they would rely upon God for all they needed through prayer. He knew by experience that it was the safest course. He was asking much of the missionaries, but not more than he was willing to give. Once in China, the new recruits were challenged by Taylor's example. They described him as one who was continuously leaning upon God and living for others. One coworker said of Taylor that it was what he was that gave such sweet, undying force to what he did. Another said, his was a life that stood looking into. I never knew any other so consistent. He lived what he taught. I have here a rare book entitled Days of Blessing in Inland China. It contains a series of talks that he gave to his missionaries 20 years after he started the new mission. In it, he repeatedly emphasized that they must have lives that authenticate their words. And for that, they would need daily abiding communion with Christ. But how did Hudson Taylor come to start the China Inland Mission? To answer that, we go to the beaches of Brighton on the southeast coast of England. The birth of the China Inland Mission was one of the most significant missionary events in the 19th century. While on furlough, Taylor considered the need to send both men and women into the unreached interior of China. But there were many difficulties with this scheme. Where would he find qualified missionaries? How could he convince them to leave England for a distant country, depending upon God alone for resources? For months, he wrestled with these and many other questions. The strain was becoming unbearable. He barely slept. On 25th of June, 1865, after Sunday services, he paced the beaches at Brighton. This thought came to him. If we are obeying the Lord, the responsibility rests with him and not with us. This view of God and his faithfulness produced practical results in Hudson Taylor's life. It was the foundation of a peaceful heart. 21 years later, he spoke of the profound impact of this experience. He wrote, I have not known what anxiety is since the Lord taught me that the work is his. It produced a freeing single-mindedness. Taylor said, my great business in life is to please God. Walking with him in the light, I never feel a burden. It also made him a man of prayer. One missionary described Taylor as outwardly unimpressive. And yet when he prayed, the man said, I had never heard anyone pray like that. There was a simplicity, a boldness, a power that hushed and subdued me and made it clear that God had admitted him into the inner circle of his friendship. He spoke with God face to face as a man talks with his friend. In fact, 
It was his lifelong practice to daily pray by name for every member of the China Inland Mission before sunrise. Finally, it made the ever-increasing knowledge of God indispensable. As a veteran missionary, Taylor often led teams of younger co-workers into the interior of China. These excursions could be dangerous and exhausting, but regardless of how long the days, the missionaries recorded that Hudson Taylor unfailingly rose an hour before dawn to seek the Lord with only his Bible and a small candle. Hudson Taylor wrote, It is easy to say, I give up all for God. Yet there are times that God teaches us how terribly comprehensive is that little word, all. The blow came when Maria Taylor was stricken with cholera before she gave birth to their last child. Both mother and child were soon laid in the grave. In the heartbreak and loneliness, Hudson Taylor pleaded Christ's own promises that whoever drinks of him continuously habitually will never thirst. He would plead, Lord, you promised. Clinging to God's faithfulness, Taylor found himself upheld, even happy in him. But it wasn't an effortless act of faith. Reflecting on this difficult season of life, he wrote, personally, it has been the most sorrowful and the most blessed year of my life. In the darkest times, there was a fullness in Hudson Taylor that caused those around him to recognize the all-sufficiency of the Savior. In 1871, Taylor married Jenny Falding, a woman who came to China as a single missionary, and they labored together for the next three decades. Throughout the remaining years of his life, Hudson Taylor never went back on his intention to reach the interior of China. Hundreds of missionaries were joining the China Inland Mission on one occasion, when the mission was low on funds, Hudson Taylor wrote, I cannot conceive how we shall be helped, though I fully expect that we shall be. The Lord cannot and will not fail us. But regardless of how great the need, Taylor would not permit the mission to beg. He warned them, when a work becomes a begging work, it dies. During all those years, the mission never once had to pass up an opportunity from lack of funds. Hudson continued traveling between England and China. His health, often frail, seemed to be failing. He was worn out with loving. The Taylors left China in 1899 and moved to Switzerland. In April of 1905, Hudson Taylor made his final journey to the land he loved so dearly. This trip took him into China's last unreached province, he was filled with joy and gratitude for a lifetime of answered prayers. In that province, Hudson Taylor passed peacefully into eternity. It would be wrong to think that Taylor's faith was the foundation of all of this. It was Taylor's God. At an event commemorating the 21st anniversary of the mission, Hudson Taylor told his coworkers, it is not great faith you need, but faith in a great God. As you study the character of God this week, will you determine to settle for nothing less than a life-altering knowledge of that great God? When we think of God, one of the questions that ought to come to mind is this. Where does God live? What is the location of God?
I mean, surely that's a significant question for all of us. Timothy Dwight said that God dwells throughout the known universe and the uninhabited regions of immensity. God himself says in Jeremiah 23, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? This week you've been studying the all-presence of God, and there are certain implications to this truth. God is in all places at once, and yet He never travels. He fills all creation without any effort. God cannot be contained by any place, so no church building, no nation, no planet, not even the universe itself, can contain God. God cannot be excluded from any place. God is not affected by terms of distance. God is really not closer to or further from anything in creation as regards His essential presence. We're going to be talking today about His relational presence. God is not merely existing everywhere as some force. He is a person, active, observing, guiding, sustaining, the scripture says he is ruling, comforting, but he's also judging, opposing, resisting. God is therefore our one unchanging environment. Paul preached to the Athenians, he, God, is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. This aspect of his majesty is his alone. It's a solitary perfection. This attribute cannot be shared with anyone else. No angel, no saint in heaven is all present. But today we want to go further to talk about the experience of this. It's more than just agreeing that this being that we call God is in all places at all times, effortlessly. But how does that affect the way a Christian lives? There is a living near God. There is the reality of God among his people. Can the nearness of God be a reality that the church experiences today? Is it even possible for God to be nearer at times than He is at other times? Well, we need to think together about the covenanted presence of God. We've talked about the essential presence of God, that He is everywhere. But the covenanted presence is different in some ways. First of all, it's based on the fulfilled conditions of the covenant by Jesus Christ. He has removed the offense between us and God, and He has provided a perfect righteousness for His people. Second, it is a mediated presence. That is, we enjoy as Christians the experience of God's nearness in a way that the world does not, but it is not a one-on-one -on -one relationship. It is God near us through the mediating work of His Son. It is because we belong to Christ, and He represents us that the nearness of God can be a life-giving event. Third, it is experiential, not positional. It is relational. And therefore, fourth, it can fluctuate. It can go up and down. So we could describe Christianity as God for us, God in us. But it also includes God with us, for us and in us. These don't fluctuate. But the experience of God's nearness 
the intimacy or lack of it, God with us, is subject to change. We could say it this way. The Christian's position in the family of God is unalterable, but your enjoyment of that relationship, the intimacy, the nearness that's available, that fluctuates. If this is not the case, if you have trouble understanding the idea that God can be nearer or further from His people in a relational way, in an experiential way, then a great deal of the Bible will not make sense to you when you read it. For instance, Hosea 5, 15, God says, I will go away and return to my place until they, that is His people, acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. So there God is using a withdrawal of His presence to get his people's attention and to motivate them to repent. Isaiah 63 says this, Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses, and they asked, Where is he? It's a wonderful scene. The people are drifting from the Lord. They don't notice God's nearness, God's activity. They read their Bibles. They see a day when God was near, when his activity was obvious to everyone. And when they look at their lives, the question rises, where is he? This is not a response of God to his people that is limited to the old covenant. It is also in the new covenant. In Revelation 3, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and we'll dine with him and he with me. You see the picture. It's not Christ and the lost sinner. It's not evangelism. This is the church of Laodicea, a church that is compromised. God has withdrawn his presence and he's painted it in this picture. Christ is on the outside of the building, knocking on the door. If there is a repentant response in his people, he will return in that wonderful experiential intimacy. Therefore, James can say to the individual Christian, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, we need to understand the conditionality of these promises. What are the conditions of God's nearness for a believer? I want us to spot the conditions in a number of verses that we're about to look at. And then we're going to talk about how there can be conditions. If we're saved by grace, if it's all of God, then how are there conditions? So let's spot some conditions. I want to read passages that describe God's nearness to his people, his people coming to him, and the conditions of that. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. The prophet asks, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? So physically, the condition for walking alongside someone on a journey is that there has to be agreement. If you think you're going to place A, and your friend has in mind place B, then at some point in the journey, you're going to part ways. If you're following your friend and he turns left, you're going to have to turn left. You have to constantly adjust yourself to maintain that closeness. Spiritually, it's the same. Agreement is essential in a spiritual walk together. God will not follow us, so we're going to follow him. And God will not be adjusted by us if we want to take a different path. So in other words, in order to maintain that sweet nearness to God, the believer must be constantly following in agreement with God or constantly adjusting my life to fit God. The moment we stop that, we part ways. 
Let me give you another verse. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, we read this. This is the message we heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, that's the fundamental statement. Then there's an application. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you see the condition here? The condition is not based on some arbitrary choice of God, a hoop that you have to jump through to earn his love. The condition is based in who God is. God is light. Therefore, God lives in a realm of light. There is a purity in God, and he exists in a pure place. And God does not leave the realm of purity to go to a realm of filth to hold friendship with the person who is continuing to choose a filthy life. So if you want fellowship with this God, there's only one option. You've got to come into the light. Of course, the work of Christ brings us there. But we're not perfect. We still do sin as believers. And 1 John 1, 9 mentions how we might, through confession, coming clean, bringing all that out into the light, laying before our Savior again, our need of Him, we're cleansed. So we can maintain fellowship with the God that only lives in the light through the work of Christ. Isaiah 57, 15 is another verse that speaks of God's dwelling and the Christian. We read this, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. So here again, we find this condition. It's based on who and what God is. God is the exalted one. He is the most high. He is holy. And he will only draw near to those who are lowly and contrite. I think we could say it this way. There's only room for one king. And if you're still strutting about, pretending as if you live for yourself and you have a right to be a self-determining, autonomous individual, then you're not going to hold fellowship with this king. But if you humble yourself then the Most High will draw near to you. James chapter 4, I mentioned verse 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. But that's preceded by some other statements. Listen to the condition. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, is built on this condition. You are married to God and he is a jealous husband. And he will not draw near to a wife whose life is full of other lovers. So if you want to walk near your husband, you're going to have to put them away. Why do these conditions exist for Christians who are in a covenant of grace? Well, first, let's say why they're not there. They're not meritorious. That is, these are not things you're doing to earn the presence of God. Let's just get it in our mind. The infinite being, the perfect being, the great, the most high, you could not earn his visitation. You could not earn his friendly visits. 
his intimacy, his presence, no matter how obedient you were. So these conditions are not meritorious, nor are they an arbitrary test of your seriousness. And sometimes people present them to us in this light. Well, God wants to know how serious you are about him. You say you want revival. You say you want the nearness of God. Well, how serious are you? Well, let's test. Will you return to him? Will you do A and B and C and D? You're not earning it, but you're proving to God you're serious. But of course, God does already know whether you're serious. It seems to me that in each of the passages we've just read, the condition is clearly based on the character of God and on the nature of a Christian's relationship to him. What kind of person God is determines where he lives and who he lives near. We saw that in Isaiah 57, the high and holy one. We saw that in 1 John, the one that is light and lives in the light. But there's also this aspect of who the Christian is and the nature of your relationship to him. We saw that in Revelation 3. God is a loving Savior that disciplines those that drift. Or in James 4, God is a husband who's put his spirit in his people and he jealously yearns for those people. Now, if we ignore who God is or the nature of our relationship in the new covenant, then really what we have is this fictional relationship with God and God will not draw near to us. What practical value does that have for a Christian today? Well, we have one of the best pastors of all time, Paul, to help us again. I want us to look today at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1, where Paul takes Old Testament promises regarding the coming of Christ and what that would do to his people, specifically in the area of God's nearness. And he takes those out of the Old Testament and he comes to the church at Corinth and he says, in light of these things, we've got to live differently. Let me read that to you. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, he says, or yoked together. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, with Satan? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Now, the Corinthian church had begun to think that obedience and holiness were optional, perhaps because of the great grace of Christ, or perhaps because of their extraordinary spiritual giftedness. But actually, the opposite is true. Grace makes a believer hold high the issues of obedience and holiness. And spiritual gifts call for a greater carefulness. How does Paul handle the problem? 
Well, two main approaches here in this passage. Paul employs a number of arguments. We could say the five absurdities. And then Paul reminds them of those Old Testament promises to entice them. And the enticing thing there is that God himself will draw near to a repentant church. So first, the absurdities. Now, the context is very important. In chapter 6, verse 11, 12, and 13, immediately preceding this passage, Paul's been talking a lot about his love for these people. And then in chapter 7, verse 2, immediately after the passage, Paul picks back up with the theme. So let me read those verses to you. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Make room for us in your hearts. It seems that chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1 is out of place. Talk about love and openness. Then again, talk about love and openness. Why is this section in here? It's such a a, a strange contrast that many liberal theologians say this was added years after Paul's death. But let me put your mind at ease. There is no manuscript evidence for that being the case. In other words, all the manuscripts we have from the 4th, 5th, 6th century, all the early copies of this letter, this is always right here. So when we come to a passage where it seems that the author has suddenly shifted his argument in a strange way, it's really a great opportunity to ask ourselves, what am I missing in the argument that makes me think that this doesn't fit? The cure is this. Paul's statements in verses 14 of chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1, really is a very loving statement. The warnings that he gives them, they're not cruel. He's not restricting their freedoms as Christians. He's not becoming legalistic. He's showing them how they can have the most of the best. So it's in keeping with love. I bring that to your mind because I want to ask you a question. When you read things like, don't be bound together, why are you trying to yoke yourself again with the old life and its old patterns? Do you think that that you're being treated cruelly? Do you think that this is not very loving? Do you think like the liberals that this doesn't fit with love? Or do you recognize, as a Christian ought to recognize, it's not easy to hear these kinds of words, but this is love. Well, the problem that Paul points out is the problem of a wrong yoke. A yoke is a harness where you get two animals to bring them together. So pulling together, they're attached, they're harnessed together so they can pull weight together, whether a cart or a plow. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you might find it strange to see that God has forbidden certain animals to be yoked together. You can't take an ox and a donkey. Why? They're not physically compatible. It wouldn't be fair to the animals. But here's a spiritual application. Paul takes that Old Testament rule for a farmer and says to the Corinthians, you understand this, don't you? God is really talking about a spiritual yoke. You are not to harness yourself to the old life again or to the world or to the way it lives. It has wider implications. Anytime we link ourselves again with the self-centered, self-ruling, self-promoting, self-sufficient, self-righteousness of our culture, 
then we have yoked ourselves unequally. The absurdity of trying to go back to that kind of life, the kind of life we had before Christ, is pointed out with these five rhetorical questions, these five absurdities. Paul wants us to feel it. It's not just to agree with our minds. He wants us to kind of feel it deep within how foolish it is to try to go back. So let's look at these quickly. First, what fellowship, he asks, does righteousness have with lawlessness? Think of it. A person who is outside of Christ is governed by this internal principle of rebellion. They are bent fundamentally to self-rule. I will be my own God. That's what they all say. That's what we said. They reject God's authorities and prefer their own authority. They are a law unto themselves. What about the Christian? The Christian is fundamentally different. The new covenant includes a work of God that Ezekiel says it's like writing God's law over the heart. So now, although the Christian is not perfect, within there's a yearning to obey. If you could take perfect righteousness and absolute heinous sinfulness and cause them somehow to be harmoniously brought together, then you can imagine a Christian going back to the old life. Second, what about light and darkness? If a room is completely dark and you walk in and you turn on these lights and all the bright lights come on, then the darkness leaves. If you turn off the lights, the light leaves, the darkness returns. In a very simple way, we could say these are mutually exclusive. They they can't exist together. If you can imagine the brightest light mixed with perfect pitch darkness, then you can imagine a Christian going back to the old life. What about Christ and Belial or the devil? Two rulers, two fundamentally different people. There is an essential antagonism between them that will never end. It is a blasphemy to suggest that Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal son of God, is somehow going to cuddle up to Satan and they're going to come to agreement on some points. But if you can imagine that happening, then you can imagine that a Christian could go back to the old life. The fourth absurdity, what portion do believers have in common with unbelievers? Two very different parents here, aren't there? God and Satan. Two very different inheritances, we could say. Satan always gives death. God gives life. Satan brings guilt. God gives justification. Satan gives emptiness. God gives fullness. If you can imagine two parents as different as God and Satan giving the same inheritance to their children, then you can imagine a Christian going back to the old life. Final absurdity. What agreement does the temple have with idols? But the Greek word here is very specific. What agreement does the Holy of Holies have with idols? It's a horrible thing when Israel built other worship sites throughout the land, but it was so much more offensive when they brought their idols right into the Holy of Holies. If you can imagine God being pleased with a fertility idol in the Holy of Holies, then you can imagine God being okay with Christians going back to their old life. Now that's the argument, but then there's the enticements. We are the temple of the living God, he says. And then there are the promises. I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. Slow down. These verses are all taken from 
the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel who were talking to people who were in exile. There are so many passages in the Old Testament on holiness. Why didn't they choose something else? Why speak to people who once were God's people in the land, but because of sin, they've been carried off to Babylon? And I think the point's clear. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, by choosing these passages, you are on the verge of captivity. Christ freed you, but you're toying with sin. Do you want to be exiled from the presence of God? Do you want to lose the nearness of God? Do you want to be like Israel, far from the Lord, and once again under the tyranny of your old masters? No, he says, so come out. Don't delay. There's nothing in the world worth dawdling for. Don't be half-hearted as you're called out of your jail cell. Run to Christ. Don't look back. Don't play with those things again. The obvious conclusion is in chapter 7, verse 1. If you have all these wonderful promises and they are for Christians today, well, listen, Corinthians, clean up. Deal with the external things that offend God. What's happening on the outside of your life? What's happening out here that's a pollutant? Get rid of it. But what about the heart? Well, don't be satisfied with the outside. The heart. What is the heart attaching itself to that offends God? Deal with that too. Root and fruit. How are they supposed to do it? Well, not so that they can be great people, not so they can have the best church, but they're to do it in the fear of the Lord. That is, with the awareness of the immense worth of God, with reverence for Him, filling their souls. Now, when we read this account, it's not just for the Corinthians. There is a God that lives everywhere. But as a believer, you can have more than that. You can have the covenanted presence. But it will not be had just by wishing it. It's not good intentions. It's taking seriously who he is and the nature of your relationship to him, considering those absurdities and considering the enticing opportunity of walking with the living God the rest of your days and running from the old life to God. However many times you have to do it again and again. May God help us. Let's pray. God, you have drawn us out of darkness into light. You've made us to be children of light. You've given us a Savior that washes us and clothes us with his righteousness. You've given us a heart that has your law written upon it. Suddenly, we love what's holy. We want to be near you, the one that we once ran from. So, Father, having begun this good work, don't leave us now. Don't let us stay here. Entice us like you did the Christians of Corinth. Show us the absurdity of ever playing around again with the sin of the world. Don't let us harness ourselves to the old life. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. For someone who's in Christ, the self-existence of God is one of the, the great reasons that we praise him. And it's one of the things that reminds us, I think, of, of how different he is from us and of how small we are and of how great he is. And it strikes me more and more that, that the, the believer needs to grasp how different God is. And when, when our children ask us questions, difficult questions that we can't answer, one of the things we have to be saying is, 
did we really expect to be able to answer all of these questions about God? You know, what's it like to be God, the creator of time outside of space and time? Really, we, we, we hardly begin to have any idea. If we begin to deny things like the eternity of God, often because we can't fit it into our own puny little minds, that I have to somehow be able to, to get God into a box that I can comprehend. Well, the moment that I can box God, the moment that a, a, a mortal like me can encompass the God that I claim to serve, by definition, I have a God who is less than I am. That, that this actually denies, derides, despises the true and living God. It's hard to know where to even begin the attributes of God, which attribute begins first, certainly as holiness at the center. But it would be difficult to begin to talk about God without beginning the discussion with the aseity of God and the self-sufficiency of God within himself, that God is not dependent upon us, but that we are entirely dependent upon him. That it is in him that we live and move and have our being. And every moment of every day, um, all that I have is from God. Yet no one is giving to God, yet we are all receiving from God. And I remember when that first struck me, I was in seminary, and I'm almost embarrassed to say I did not even think about this. And I remember picking up uh, Thomas Watson's book, A Body of Divinity, and just looking at the table of contents. And there was more of God in the table of contents than there was in most contemporary Christian books. As the first page was just the attributes of God, the second page was just every other area of theology. And I saw how theocentric, how God-centered this was. And as I began to read it, this truth of the autonomy of God, the independence of God, the self-sufficiency of God came crashing home. Because I thought I was doing God a wild favor by leaving the bank and going to seminary. And I really thought I'd made this huge sacrifice and given up a lot for God. And, and almost wasn't God now in an advantageous position to have someone like me serving Him. That's just how prideful I was. And as soon as I saw this truth, it was just... It was literally overwhelming to me that I had it all backwards and that God didn't need me, but that I desperately needed God far more than I had ever even realized and that it was just the sovereign grace and mercy of God that chose to use someone like me, but that I am what I am by the grace of God, um, this truth of his self-sufficiency was also very comforting, not just convicting, but also comforting in that everything that I need is found in God. And I thought that I was needing all these other things, that I could be in a Roman prison cell like Paul and find my full sufficiency in God. 
I could be going through the most difficult trial of adversity. I don't actually have to pick up the phone now and call people and make things happen or play to people's sympathies toward me. I could just call upon God and God would provide me everything that I need. So it, it has just given me a much more myoptic focus in my Christian life. And admittedly, I, I still become distracted and pulled away and can be seduced at times to buy into other things, but the contemplation of God through the Scripture just keeps bringing me back to this point, that it's in Him that I live and move and have my being. And for me to live is Christ and nothing else. Let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer as we close the Sunday school session and uh, get ready for our worship service. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you as a desperately needy group of sinners, Lord. We are completely dependent upon your grace and your mercy in our lives, and we thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world that you had set uh, your divine mercy upon us, Lord, and you would bring us from death to life in the fullness of time. Lord, that you might use these ransom lives for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us. Lord, we thank you for the ability to understand your scripture, your word, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over all things, that you are everywhere at all times, Lord, and that you allow us to draw close to you while you may be found. Lord, we pray for this morning. Uh, we pray for our worship service to you, Lord, that um, you would make right our hearts before you, that our worship would be acceptable to you, Lord. Um, I pray for the hearts and the minds of all in attendance today, Lord, that you would do a mighty work this morning. We pray this all according to the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.